And uh, welcome back. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving break. Those who are gone, those who stayed, uh, you held down the fort with us. So uh, we had a good time. Well, like Rich said, tonight is our last night for the semester in 1 John. We'll pick it back up in the spring, um, in January, when you guys get back. But um, tonight we're going to finish up chapter 3. So if you would, just go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. As I'm sure you remember, John writes this letter to deepen our assurance. He wants us to, to grow in our confidence that we belong to Christ and to know uh, the love of God that's been given to us and that our future is sure. He wants us to know with clarity who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And he wants us to know that lest we're tempted to doubt. He wants us to continue to believe the good news of the gospel, to continue to stay humble about our sin, to continue to depend on Christ day by day. And John knows that Christ has provided in his cross and in his person the very grounds of our assurance. As we look away from ourselves and to him, He is our propitiation, John's taught us. He is our advocate. He is our life and our access to it. But John, even though he knows that the, the foundation of our assurance is laid by Christ through what He's done for us, he knows that our experience of assurance can come and go. It can grow. It can, it can pale at different points in our Christian lives. And he wants it to grow. In fact, you could argue that this entire letter is given so that we might grow in assurance and confidence so that we would live fruitful lives while we're here um, on this earth. And John knows that growth and assurance comes as we learn to navigate a world that's hostile to God's people. It's hostile to us as the children of God. It's a world that, that presents threats on every side because it's under the dominion of the devil and of the children of the devil. As we continue in the truth, as we, as we continue learning to trust Christ and becoming more obedient to Him, John tells us that we'll grow in this confidence before the Lord, the confidence that we belong to Him, confidence in life and in death. And since chapter 2, really he's turned the corner about midway through chapter 2, and since that point, he's been giving us directions. Those are where the commands come in in the letter, about halfway through chapter 2, all the way through the end of the letter. And these directions we've been calling our field guide to kind of help us navigate life in the world, in a world that's hostile to us. The terrain is difficult, the path is hard, and so we have this sure guide from the Apostle John in the back half of this letter. And just to get our bearings, he's told us a number of things. He's told us not to love the world in, in chapter 2, verse 15. Not to love the world. It's passing away. The world's not here to stay. It's full of deceptive desires. Desires that will lead us astray. It's false hope. And so don't be enamored with the sinful world. It's a false hope. He's also told us to stay dependent on Jesus. Right? Stay dependent on His words, on His person. That's abide in Him. John's told us in chapter 2. 
Verse 24, verse 28, let His words abide in us. What we've heard from the beginning, abide. And he wants, he wants us to abide in Christ so that we'll know how to discern the lies of the Antichrists. And this world, now that we live in the last hour, is full of these Antichrists. People that are seeking to actively deceive us. And in, in chapter 3, he's told us to fix our eyes on the love of the Father. To behold the love that God has given to us as His children and calling us His children. To fix our eyes on that love that we have now and the future hope that we will be fully transformed when Christ returns. And as you remember, the last time we were together, John told us that we've got to fight deception about habitual sin. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you about continuing in sin. He assured us if we belong to God, if we really are part of His family, if we really are His children, our growth in righteousness will be there, and it is sure to be there. If we're born of God, if we belong to Him, if His seed abides in us, we won't make a practice of sinning, meaning we won't continue headlong in habitual sin. God's too invested in us to let us stay there. And tonight, God, or John, the Lord through John, is going to add another sort of page to this field guide. You want to call it that. He's going to remind us that one of the key indicators of a child of God is that we love. We love. And He's going to warmly and clearly call us to greater expressions of that love while we're here in the world. And he knows that as we learn to love like Christ, we're certainly going to grow in our assurance. That's where this passage ends tonight. And what you're going to notice is that his call to love is not just a call to love anyone and everyone, although that's true, and that's very important. John's focus in this passage is our love for each other. Our spiritual siblings, for other church members, the people sitting, sitting next to you right now. The people that will sit next to you on Sunday morning when you come back to TBC. The lovely and the unlovely. The mature and immature. The struggling and the victorious in the Christian life. We're called to love each other. Because we are members of the same family, John argues, we should love our spiritual brothers and sisters. John wants us to be radically committed to each other, willing to even lay our lives down for each other. Now this is the first extended discussion of love in John's letter so far. He's kind of hinted at it in, back in chapter 1. But this is the first extended discussion of love. I think actually it was, it was in the opening of chapter 2 when he talked about the commandment. I don't know if you remember that. But he never explicitly talked about love. But here's the first extended discussion of it in, in the letter so far. But don't let that fool you. This theme is going to resurface again in chapter 4, again in chapter 5, interwoven with the theme of the Spirit, because it is so central to John. The, these chapters are some of the most beautiful expositions in all of Scripture about God's love for us, our love to, to be returned to Him, and our love for one another. And clearly this topic was of, of utmost importance to John. 
And he spends a lot of time on it, I think, because we all know this by experience. Love is hard, right? Unless you've redefined it um, as an emotion or something else. Love is very challenging. And it's tempting often, especially in the church and in our relationships with each other, to just throw the towel in when we've been hurt by other people. If you've never been hurt by somebody in the church, it's because you're not loving them, all right? And they're not loving you. Because when we get close, sin happens. It's tempting to just stay at home or in the dorm on Sunday after we've been betrayed at church. And not only is love hard, but the expectation that church life involves committing to each other in love, in this kind of love, is so foreign to the evangelical church today. It like doesn't, it, it, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a foreign concept. We're tempted, we'll talk about love, but, but when we talk about committing to each other in love, that is, that is far and away an un- unfamiliar territory to wider evangelicalism. We're tempted to reduce church life to coming to hear a sermon, singing some songs, and then leaving. And then doing it again next week. We're tempted to envision church in terms of our personal relationship, our individual relationship with Jesus, and our individual growth as Christians without giving much thought to our obligations toward each other. We're tempted to stay surfacy with people that we sit next to in the pew. And we're tempted to leave if something makes us uncomfortable. We're tempted to stay uncommitted in church life. We want to leave our options open. We loosely attend here or there when it's convenient when we don't have too many exams on Monday. We'll pick and choose. We'll go to one church for this study and we'll go to that church for another study. And that's because we don't realize that Christ intends us to be radically committed in love to a particular body. And to learn to love that group of people the way that Christ has loved us. Well, John's not going to let us stay there if that's how we think. He's going to show us tonight that love in the context of the church is what being a Christian is all about. It is the outworking of the gospel. It's love. And so he's he's going to give us tonight five insights about love. And there, there are five insights that I think John intends to motivate us to commit to each other, to lay our lives down for one another in the context of the church. So really, five insights about love that that is going to motivate us to to love one another. John knows that it's hard. He knows that we trend away from making strong commitments to each other. And so he he motivates us here with, with teaching on his love. All right, so the first insight that John gives us about love for the church is that it's actually a central feature of the gospel message itself. So we could say love for the church is central, is a central part of the gospel message. It's a central feature of the, of the truth that we've heard in the beginning. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 11. We'll actually pick back up in verse 10. That's where we ended last time, but just to kind of get us a running start. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, and then here's the transition, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. So for John, as he's transitioning into our paragraph for this evening, puts love for our brothers is the is a is an evidence of who is a children of God versus who's children children of the devil. For he says, verse eleven. Here's where picking up. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. What is it that we should love one another? So this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love. One another. In other words, love for the church is central to the gospel message. John says here that the command to love other believers was part of the teaching that this church received when they first heard about Jesus. You see that? It was at the heart of what he calls the message. The message. Very interesting way to talk about a command as the message. So what message is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel message. He's saying our love for other Christians was a central part of the very gospel that was preached to these believers in the beginning. But how so? When we think of the gospel, I don't know about you, but I typically don't associate it with our love, do we? We know the gospel is fundamentally a message about whose love? Christ's love, God's love, right? God's love for us, not our love, right? John in, the, in chapter 4 is going to say, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And we love God because he first loved us. So we, we kind of intuitively know the gospel is about God's great love, not, not my love, God's great mercy. Before God saved us, we were haters of God, not lovers. We were dead in our sin. We weren't alive. We were God's enemies, not his friends. The gospel is not about our love in that sense at all. But for anyone who has experienced the radical love of God, anyone who has had their sins fully forgiven by this God, anyone who has become a beloved child of the Father, this person is now enabled to love. We're enabled to forgive, and we must love. Love is a necessary consequence of the gospel. It's a necessary consequence of the gospel. We're going to unpack this. So in that sense, the command to love others is as central to the gospel as the command to believe in Jesus. At the end of our paragraph, John's going to say the same thing. Look down in verse 23. He says, And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So here's Here's what God commands of us. To believe in His Son and to love each other. Just as He commanded us. So the command to love is as central to the gospel as the command to believe. The end goal, in other words, of believing the gospel, the end goal of this, of experiencing the love of God, is our transformation into people who love. That's Christ's end purpose in loving us. The gospel creates an obligation in us to pay it forward, so to speak. 
to love like we've been loved. And we're going to flesh this out more fully in, in another point, but I just want to lay this out here because this is where he starts. Love for the church is central to the gospel's message. And John's point here is to remind us of how important it is to love the church. It's been a central implication of the gospel from day one, from the day you first heard it. That's what he's saying. This is the very heart of Christ's desire for his people. It's not a peripheral issue to him. It's not something that he hopes will happen. He is radically committed to making us into a people who love like he loves. And it's so important that we say this to each other, right? And remind us of the centrality of love in our church. Because love's a challenge, and it cuts against the grain of our self-love. We're often tempted to marginalize the centrality of love in the church and in our lives as Christians. So how so? Well, love often gets marginalized in our lives as believers when we begin to think that Christ is somehow more concerned with my private devotion to Him than with how I treat other believers. Make sense? We start thinking, oh, He really cares about my devotions in the morning, but He's not as concerned with how I've just treated my mom or how I just treated my roommate or how I just treated that believer in the church. They are equal concerns to Him. Christ is just as concerned with how you treat other Christians as He is in your personal quiet times. And one of the truths, they're not pitted against one another. They're both important. They're both necessary. And so one, one of the ways I try to reinforce this to myself is at the start of every day, in my time with the Lord, is that, that reminding myself that Christ has loved me so that I will bend that love out to others as I go about my day. He's loved me so that as I enter into the day and I begin to fulfill the responsibilities of my day, beginning with breakfast with my kids and my wife, that I begin to think about love. Then I try to envision the various moments of my day and envision how I might love and serve those people that I predict I will interact with. I don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but when you have routines, you kind of know what's coming. And so that's one easy way to sort of fight this propensity in ourselves to, to, to think, oh, Christ is really concerned with my private devotions. But he's not as concerned with how I, how I interact with the people around me. I think another area that love needs to take priority, that we need to, to, to bring this, this centrality of love back into, into focus, is how we think about Sundays. How we think about the times when we gather together with each other. It's very easy to start to think about Sunday as a time for me to receive, and it is. It's a time for you to receive from Christ. He has a word for you. He wants to edify you, encourage you, convict you, all those things via the corporate gatherings. But Sundays are designed by Christ not just for you to receive from Him and from others, but also for you to give your life away to the other church members. That is just as important on a Sunday morning. Is hearing the sermon and singing the songs and praying. When we come to church, one of our central concerns needs to be, who can I love today? Who can I encourage? What need can I meet? We need to do what it takes to repent of that self-love before we come. 
that self-love that, that so plagues us, even on Sundays. We're often preoccupied when we get here. We're focused on our needs. We're anxious about our lives. We're often concerned with what others are thinking about us. But we need to remember that we've been loved by the Lord and that He wants us to extend that love to the people that are sitting beside us on Sundays and on Thursdays. If your life's dominated by a sin pattern, we talked about it last week, if your life's dominated, come to us. We want to help you. Because when, you're in a, when your life's dominated by sin, you're not going to be thinking outwardly because you're ensnared. So one of the roles of shepherding is to equip you so that you can be mended, healthy, and loving the body. So that's the first insight um, about love that John gives us is that love is central to the gospel. And we need to bring it back to center. Love for others is central to the gospel's message. And that leads us to John's second insight about love. And love, or a lack thereof, reveals something about a a person. It reveals something about our spiritual nature, John's going to say. Love for the church reveals our spiritual nature, it shows us something about ourselves. Now, he's going to make this point in multiple ways, and we're going to read, let's just read all these verses, beginning in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. And the converse is also true. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, what John's saying is that love for the church, or lack thereof, it reveals something about us. It reveals something about our spiritual nature. And in these verses, John's really taking the next step in the argument. If love is central to the gospel, if, and it is, if it's central, then those who truly believe the gospel will love. In other words, concern for other believers reveals whether or not we really have experienced the love of God, whether or not we belong to Him. Love reveals our spiritual nature. Now, John makes this point in several ways in these verses. He leads off with an an Old Testament example, right? A negative example that illustrates his point, and it's the example of Cain. Cain obviously did not love his brother. He murdered him. And his murder, John tells us, reveals his satanic origin. So we might say it like this. Love's absence reveals satanic origins. The fact that there's not love in someone's life means they are satanic. They are of the evil one. Again, not my words. This is the Apostle John. It shows, the lack of love shows that a person belongs to Satan and not to Jesus. Look with me again in verse 12. 
we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So you know the story. It seems out of the blue he just starts talking about Cain. But it's, very, it's like the perfect choice uh, of a biblical illustration. It's from Genesis 4. Cain and Abel both presented two brothers. It's important. Cain and Abel both presented sacrifices to the Lord. Then the Lord rejected Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's offering. Cain gets mad, right? The Lord approaches Cain and he says, essentially, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which implies he's not doing well. (laughs) If he was doing well, his, his, sacrifice was, his sacrifice would have been accepted. If you, do, if you do not do well, here's a warning, and you're not, right? Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it, God says. The Lord here clearly implies that he rejected Cain's offerings because Cain was living in sin. Unrepentant sin, like we saw last time we were together. He wasn't trusting the Lord and seeking to rule over his sin. So instead of repenting, instead of hearing the word of the Lord, being cut to the heart, confessing his sin, repenting, seeking the Lord's mercy, instead of doing that, he took Abel out to the field and then he murdered him. But in our text, John adds a detail that's not explicit, may we say, in the Genesis narrative, although it is definitely there. John says that Cain was of the evil one. You see that? Verse 12. Cain is of the evil one. And and this implies, and he says, and he murdered his brother. So the fact that he's of the evil one implies that that's why he murdered his brother. So according to John, Cain was satanic. He was from the evil one. He was not from God. When his sin was exposed, his anger burned. He justified himself instead of owning it. He was consumed with his own desires. He was consumed with spiteful vengeance, with embittered jealousy. And what John wants us to see is that this lack of love for Abel, his murderous hatred, reveals something about his nature. That he is the seed of the serpent. The offspring of Satan. Now, I said it's not explicit in the Genesis 4 text because back in Genesis 3, one of the the curses that were given by the Lord on the serpent was that his his seed, his offspring, the seed of the snake, would be continually at war with the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve. And that the snake and the offspring of the snake would bruise the child of the woman's heel and he would bruise his head. So there would be a decisive wound and then victory over the snake and the snake's offspring. And so the question then is, what does Moses mean? Moses wrote Genesis. What does Moses mean when he talks about the seed of the serpent? Is he talking about baby snakes? And the answer is no, because as you get into Genesis 4, the very next story, Cain is referred to in the same terminology as the snake. It's very clear that Cain takes life. God gives life. 
Cain is a murderer. He is a man killer, literally. And so Cain is functioning in that narrative, according to Moses, as the seed of the snake. And that's the connection that's made here by John. John is a very keen reader of his Old Testament narrative. And so he picks this up. And that's important to observe, and we'll see why in just a second. Because this means that when we see and interact with people who are dominated by these kinds of desires, it's what we once were, when we see this, we see this kind of self-absorption, this kind of anger, this kind of embittered behavior, this hatred, in short, when we see a lack of love, we can know that they are the devil's progeny. They are the seed of the serpent. And these themes, the seed of the snake, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, are why John can make the connection that he makes in verse 13. He says, we should not, we should not be surprised when the world hates us. It's an interesting development. We went from Cain and Abel to then drawing an inference about us. That's because in Christ, we are the seed of the woman. We are that righteous offspring in the Messiah. And the world is now the seed of the serpent. John connects Cain with the seed of the serpent, and then he connects the world, all who are outside of Christ, with that seed. And because the world is of the evil one, then we should expect to receive its hatred even when we are pursuing love. Are we tracking? And John tells us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. We often are surprised, though, aren't we? We're loving people in the world, and we think, what's the matter? Like, why don't you, why don't you receive this? What, what's going on? John is saying the reason is because the world is of the evil one. When we take flack from others because of Christ, we're often caught off guard, but John's reminding us that it's normal. And it's actually a backdoor confirmation that we are on the right track. Like Cain toward Abel, the world is full of animosity toward the people of God. And the world is ultimately a loveless place. And the lack of love, true love, indicates satanic origins. But the church is and should be a different story altogether. We should be a place, we are a place full of Christ's love. We're like an LED light, right? Shining out in the darkness. Those things are bright. We bought some for our Christmas tree. Didn't realize they were LEDs. And we are glowing in the basement. And that's what the church should be like. When a church is full of love, they shine. And this also reveals something. Love, the presence of love, reveals something else. Love's presence reveals a state of life. That there's life in that church. The presence of love reveals a state of life in the church. In verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So how do we know that? Because we love. We know that we're not, no longer under death 
were in life. We passed from death into life, which implies that we were once in the realm of death, right? We were once seed of the, ser- seed of the snake, just like every other member of the world. But we've been transferred out. So love, John says, is an indicator that we have escaped the curse of Genesis 3. The curse that plagues this darkened world, the curse of death. The very fact that we genuinely love other believers, even if it's small, even if there's mixed motives at times, the very fact that we genuinely love other believers shows that we have passed out of death. It shows that we belong to the realm of life, according to John. It reveals, we've ex- that, it reveals that we've experienced and are experiencing now eternal life. We are no longer spiritually dead. Instead, we have been enlivened, and now we genuinely care about the welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Before you were in Christ, all you cared about was yourself may have looked pretty on the outside, but in the inside, that was modus operandi for you. It was the only option for you. But now that we are in Christ, we find in our hearts a love for each other, a love springing up. We want to be together. Church is a place we want to come to, to hear the truth and to love one another. That was not there before. Our love shows that we belong to the new heavens and the new earth, which is a world full of love. It shows that we are the kind of people who will be raised from the dead and glorified and will live forever in righteousness. So are you starting to see why our love for each other is such a big deal to John? Why it has to remain, number one, central in our churches? Because of what it reveals. And finally, the corollary is also true. We'll move quickly through this. But its absence, again, it comes back to its absence. Its absence, the absence of love, reveals a state of death. Reveals a state of death. Pick it back up in the the back half of verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. They remain in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So anyone, or even any church, that doesn't practically and tangibly exhibit the love of Christ reveals that they abide, literally remain, in a state of death. That's not good. It's another way of saying that they are still under the curse of Genesis 3 and will be judged accordingly unless they repent. Then in verse 15, John says that that everyone who hates is actually a murderer at heart. They have the murderous intentions of Cain. This impulse to take life reveals that they can't have eternal life dwelling inside them. People who are abiding in life, who have this eternal life, they don't take it. As we're going to see, they give it. They give it away. If they had this kind of life from Christ, they wouldn't have this kind of murderous hatred. Abiding is the language, abiding in their hearts. They would be broken by it. They would be confessing it. They would be seeking help for it when it's there. They would learn to love like they've been loved in Jesus. So, 
This love is a big deal because it's a, a massive diagnostic for the church. If we love and are growing in it, it shows that we are alive, that we are part of, of God's children, that we're not children of the devil. But at this point, you might be wondering, okay, what exactly does love look like? We've talked a lot about it, but we've not really defined it. If it's that important, if it's that central, if it reveals that much about me, what should this kind of love actually look like? Well, John goes on to tell us in his third insight. He says that love for the church is rooted in Jesus' sacrifice for us. Love for the church, this is the best word I can, it's, I'm, you're going to see, I'm, I'm combining lots of concepts in this word, rooted. Okay, It's rooted in Jesus' sacrifice for us. Love for the church is bound up in Christ's death for us. Look in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay it down for our brothers. So there's a lot packed in this verse that I think John is, uh, that's implied in the way John writes this verse. I'll show it to you. I've, I've put them out, I broke them out into some statements. Okay? Initially, I think John's saying that Jesus' love is our enablement to love other people. Jesus' love for us, that is our enablement to then love another person. He says, in, by this we know love. We know it. And this word know is literally, we have known love. In this, we have known love, that he died for us. Our own experiential knowledge of Jesus' love is what enables us to love others. And that's what John means when he says we know, or literally we have known love. We know it, or we've known it, in the sense that we've experienced it. We've come to believe that he really does love us in Christ. We have a settled knowledge that his love doesn't change because it wasn't earned by us. It was earned by the Messiah. We're now in his family if we've believed in Jesus. And that's a settled confidence. And being in his family means we're loved. When we sin and our consciences are inflamed with guilt, we're learning to run to him in honest confession. And we're learning to rest in his promises of forgiveness. And we're learning to trust him for change. That's a heart that has and continues to experience the love of Christ. And this love is the foundation. This love is the well that we draw from to then pour out the water of love to other people. It's our sure foundation that enables us to stand firmly living a life of love. We know that we're cared for by the most perfect Heavenly Father. We really believe that God's going to meet our needs. Like that's not just some platitude we say to one another. We really believe that. We really believe that we have nothing to fear ultimately, that we are free to love. His love is known by us, and thus we are enabled to love. 
But it's not only our enablement, as incredible as that is. It's our definition. Jesus' love defines love for us. And that's very important, isn't it? (laughs) That we know what love actually means. What it is. Jesus' love for us, His sacrificial death for us, the death of Jesus, is our standard for love. It's its very definition. When we say love, that when, as Christians, when we hear that word, the very first image that should come into our minds is the image of radical sacrifice, of the sacrifice of our Savior. That should be first. Not an emotion. Not that emotions are bad. Emotions can be very good. Very wonderful things when we think about love. But what John wants us to pick up is that love is sacrificial. Because that's the language he uses here. Jesus laid his life down for us. He didn't just say he loved us, but more importantly, he demonstrated it in the most profound way. So Christ is not running around telling us he loves us. He's showing us that he loves us. He's demonstrating it at the greatest cost to himself. By laying down his very life for us. We're constantly tempted to redefine love according to our terms, to our feelings, to our ways of thinking. But John says we can know the real thing when it's generously sacrificial. And Jesus' death is the standard, it's the definition, the truest expression of love. And as such, His love becomes our pattern. Jesus' love is our pattern for love. That's our pattern. Notice that John uses the very language he used for Christ, and then he applies it to us. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So why does he repeat the language? Just as Jesus laid his life down for us, so then we lay our lives down for our brothers, meaning the church. It's our pattern. He gave us a pattern, and he intends us to follow it. He intends us to act sacrificially for the good of others in the church. So let's think this through. Okay, if he's our pattern, then what's his love like? Well, He definitely didn't wait on us to become lovely, did he? He took the initiative, even when we were his enemies. And he wants us to initiate in love toward others. Not to wait around to be loved first. This is so important in so many areas of life. Um, But let me just dial in on the young men. Do you want to be married? No? Okay, great. Let's move on. <laughs> You're like, yes. <laughs> I think. We'll learn to initiate in love right here in the church. It's a single man. Learn to initiate in love in the church. In other words, stop playing video games and take initiative to find ways to lay down your life for the good of those around you. Take responsibility for the good of others 
those that are next to you, those senior saints that are here that are having a hard time taking it, take initiative to love them. You don't need somebody telling you how to do that. Take, take the initiative. And do it at cost to yourself. Because what you're going to find if you flip over to Ephesians 5 is that this sacrificial love is the very love by which we love our wives. And you can begin doing that now. He didn't wait on us to become lovely. Christ took the initiative. And so we want to take initiative in loving one another. And he loved us also when we least deserved it, right? We might not say it, but sometimes we love others when we feel they deserve it. Do you do that? Sadly, I do that. We love when we we feel like they've warranted our love. And when we perceive they don't, or we, we, we withhold our love in some form or fashion, right? But we, our hearts are so subtle. Well, what, if they, what if they take advantage of me? Right? What if I get hurt? I'm loving these people that don't deserve it. Ungrateful, whatever. We think these things, right? What about Christ? Did he try to preserve himself? When he loved us, was he self-preserving? I thought about this this afternoon. Like, what if Jesus was afraid of being taken advantage of or being hurt by people in the church? We often make our love for the church contingent on not being hurt or not being taken advantage of. Or we excuse our lack of commitment because we were hurt. Imagine if Christ said that. We tell Jesus that we will obey Him as long as it doesn't involve relational pain. As long as it doesn't involve relational awkwardness. As long as it doesn't involve discomfort. But we will certainly be hurt when we love others like Jesus did. But he did not stutter when he called us to love. When he calls us to imitate him. When he calls us to love the saints. He knows, (laughs) of all people, that love is risky. That love involves pain and is full of it at times. But do you know what? Our Savior is in full control of that too. And even the hurt that we experience as we stick our necks out there for one another in the church, even that hurt, that betrayal, becomes the occasion of growth in our relationship with Christ. We begin to taste His sufferings in ways that we didn't know them before. We begin to feel what He felt when we betrayed Him. We begin to learn to love our enemies, even if they're sitting in the pew next to us. We begin to relate to Him in ways that we have not related with Him before. We we begin to partake in His sufferings and how sad it is when people bolt 
from the congregation and they don't press in and learn these beautiful lessons from our Lord. Christ did not try to preserve himself when he loved us. He was not afraid of being taken advantage of or being hurt by others. Now, I could keep talking about this, but this is just a sampling of ways that our love patterns his. So, my challenge to you would be in your meditations this week and in your conversations with each other, be thinking about ways that our love should pattern his. There's lots of them. Lots of them. All right, and finally, notice, last thing we're going to say here about how our love is rooted in Christ's sacrifice for us. Is it Jesus' love, his death for us, and the fact that we're saying that we're benefiting from that? That love creates an obligation in us to love. It's not an option. It's an obligation to be committed, to stick it out with one another. It's an obligation. John's language is very strong. He says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And even that's weak, okay? It's a weak translation compared to the original. A stronger translation would sound like this. We are obligated to lay down our lives for one another. So why do you think it's helpful to remember our obligation to love? Because love is challenging, like we've said. We so easily make excuses for not loving. We default toward self-love in our flesh. But knowing that Christ's love for me obligates me to love others, that keeps me going, even when it's hard. Sometimes I think about this. Sometimes I think about standing before Jesus on that final day, Marks of the slaughter are on him, and of what it cost him to save me. And I try to imagine myself giving an excuse of why I didn't love the church. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. And he's telling us explicitly that this is an obligation. He's going to ask us on that final day, did you love my people? Because my death for you obligated you to love them. So as you can see, John tells us that our love for our fellow church members is absolutely rooted in Christ's love for us from start to finish, right? He enables us to love. He defines it. He, he patterns it for us. He, he calls us to it. And now, John doesn't leave us without some practical application. His fourth insight helps us see that love is not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's not just good intentions with no action. Love is, love for the church is rooted in Jesus' sacrifice. No, is intensely practical. It's like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Love for the church is intensely practical. All right, look in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So according to John, this is where the rubber meets the road. Our love is expressed as we learn to meet tangible, practical needs in the church. The false teachers, those who had left this church, they likely claimed that they loved other people. But they were greedy. 
They loved the world back in chapter 2. They did not love the world. They did love the world. They loved the things in the world. And so they were unwilling to part with the resources they so dearly loved to benefit other people with them. And John's saying that's not the way it ought to be. Do not live for this life only. And so for John, love in word, to just say, I love you, that is not genuine love. Christ didn't love us in word only, did he? Word only love, I'm going to call it that, it's kind of word only love is, is actually hypocritical love. But genuine love, that love seeks to meet needs. And I love how basic this is. I love how normal and just mundane this is. And it meets needs, just like Christ met our needs. That's the impulse of love. Needs are often met at cost to ourselves. And that's the point. In the church John was writing to, some of the believers apparently needed material resources. Right? So that's the idea, the world's goods. Just talking about material resources, the, literally the life of the world. <laughs> but you might be thinking, I play. Forget who we are. Uh, we are college students or young professionals just getting started in our jobs, or we don't have them. I don't have a lot to spare at this point, right? So material goods, I share my Pop-Tarts. Well, just because you're poor doesn't mean that you can't love, all right? As you get to know people, as you build relationships with them, find out what their needs are. Maybe you can't meet them if they're physical needs, like if they actually have monetary needs, and you don't have the money, but you can help connect them to us, to someone who can. You can befriend one of the older saints in our church. You can pray for them. You can follow up with them. You can help them clean up their yards. I mean, the list is endless. You can befriend someone tonight, ask about them, listen to them without interjecting stuff about yourself. Just draw them out, see how they're doing. Hear their burdens, encourage them, pray with them. There's formal needs at the church, PowerPoint on Sunday mornings, nursery slots, yada, yada, yada. Opportunities abound. That's not the point. Now, any of the leaders can, can help you figure that out. But the point here is that our love for the church need to be, needs to be measured practically by our willingness to meet needs. Meet the needs of the church, this local church that you are committed to. It's not dramatic. Even though the Lord may call us one day to literally give our lives for each other, it's much more mundane than that. Uh, we just find needs and meet them, right? And one of the things I just am so encouraged by on a consistent basis by you guys is you get after it. Like the core of our ministry here, you guys are just outpacing me and everybody else in finding needs, meeting them, and making sure that people are taken care of. And so I don't want you to get the wrong idea that I'm just hammering you and I think you're not doing anything and you're all unbelievers and spawn of Satan, okay? <laughs> I see you doing this. And it's an incredible encouragement to me. Rich sees it too. We all see it. It's one of the thrills of serving in this, this area of the ministry. And so I just want to encourage you to excel still more. And if those of you are on the fringe and you're really convicted by tonight, just watch what happens about the people who are members here and they love the church. You'll see um, what goes on here, and you'll learn to, to love the saints. And let me say one more thing real quick, uh, mainly just because you're young and you're given to extremes. Uh, I know how that is. Uh, let me tell you what John's not saying. 
He's not saying that you give all your time to the church and become unfaithful in every other responsibility that the Lord has given you to bear. Can we agree on that? John's not saying that. Many of you are students and you're here to study. Others have jobs. Some have spouses and children. All of these responsibilities are God-given and are good. But what John is saying is that our motive for love should be like a filter over it all. Does that make sense? It's like a filter that colors all the responsibilities of our lives. We should define ourselves as people who are willing to give our lives away for the good of others in those spheres. And also, and particularly, and especially in the church sphere. Which means that Maybe if you're on the fringe, if you're too busy for the church, if you're too busy to really slow down and meet needs and find out what they are and try to help, then you probably need to, you definitely need to reprioritize over the break. I know you've got exams, I know things are coming down the pipeline, but break's coming, and it's a good reset. And reprioritize, rethink about your schedule. If you need help doing that, we'll gladly help. Now, this brings us to our final insight. I promise you we're going to end real quick. We'll be very brief. I'll probably pick up here in next semester. Um, but I wanted to at least include it tonight as a teaser because John intends this last point to be a major, major motivation to us. So where he ends this paragraph is so encouraging, it's so incentivizing. He says that love for the church brings tremendous benefit to our lives. When we love the church, we're definitely benefiting other people, but that's not what he points out for you. He points out that you get the benefit when you learn to love like Christ. Look with me in verse 19. By this, namely by loving like Christ, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God in whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit. That's a transitional statement. By the Spirit whom He has given us. So love for the church brings tremendous, tremendous benefits to our lives. John says that when we learn to love, we grow in assurance. He says we know that we're of the truth. We're not of the evil one, right? It's kind of the corollary. We're of the truth. When we give ourselves away in these tangible little ways in the body. But even John knows, and we're going to flesh this out next time, John knows that none of us love like we ought to. He knows that. Even tonight, every believer here is thinking about how deficient we are in loving other people, aren't we? How self-absorbed we often are. Our hearts accuse us. Or as John says, our hearts condemn us. Yet the little acts of love are, are what we can look to, even as imperfect as they are. These little acts of love, we look to these for confidence that we've really experienced Christ's love. Every time we trust Jesus, every time we obey Him by faith, every time we stick our neck out there in love in the body, that's fruit. And that does not ultimately come from you. No matter how small it is, every act of obedience should be an encouragement to us. 
And we should point it out to each other in each other's lives. Hey, wow, I saw how you're loving that saint. Praise God. Like, that's stimulating me. I want to love like you in the body. We should point it out, and that's what John's doing here. He's incentivizing us with the reward of confident assurance. And our hearts, our consciences are often going to remind us of these ways that we're coming up short, especially in this area of love. But John reminds us that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater in mercy. He remembers His covenant that He's made with us based on Christ. He knows everything. Every little act of obedience is born out of faith. Every positive side of our mixed motives, He knows those things. He knows the extent of His mercy. He knew how bad we were when He called us. Better than we did. He knows the extent of your sinfulness to date. Better than you do. He is not surprised when it comes out. And yet, He is pledged to love us and is committed to changing us. These realities help us quiet our accusing hearts as we come to Him in humble confession and faith. And these realities stimulate us to more love, which lends itself to more confident assurance. And when our hearts are confident, John says in this passage, what happens? We know that God's going to answer our prayers. It's bold. We know that God's going to answer prayer. When our hearts are confident, when we're loving like Christ, we're taking His Word seriously. We've taken this obligation seriously that we are to love. We're trying. We know that that opens up the channels of communion with Christ. That deepens our communion with Him. Our friendship matures because we're learning to follow Him in this way. And He grants us the requests that we ask of Him. Those requests for more fruit. So John says that as we learn to love, we can expect more power in prayer. <laughs> not incentivizing to love and to, to lay it all on the line? And that's just a sampling of some of the benefits that come into our lives when we learn to love like Christ. We can make a list. John gives them to us to motivate us here at the end of this paragraph, and we have to keep these benefits before us in the, in the for, forefront of our minds so that we'll persevere in loving. So those are John's five insights about love. These insights he gives us to propel us to a life of love right here at TBC. His goal, Christ's goal, is to motivate you to grow in your expressions of love in the church. We're going to end here. We're out of time. But as always, if you have questions, love to talk. Many more things we could say about this passage. Um, just come find one of us and we'll chat. All right, let's pray. Father, we're humbled by your love for us. We're convicted um, by our lack of love at times. We're encouraged by the fruit that we see in our lives, these little expressions of how we've, we've chosen to love others, we've denied ourselves. And yet we long for more. We long for answered prayer. Uh, we long for deeper communion with you and a fellowship in your sufferings and more fruitful lives here. And you tell us tonight that learning to love is the path to that. So we, we pray that you would help us to love like Christ more today, more tomorrow than we did yesterday. We ask it in Jesus' name.